Hi, everyone. I'm Cheryl Rose, and this is Maybe, a podcast about the messy reality of working for social innovation. These are stories about uncertainty and risk, about holding big questions and not always having the answers. It's about honest conversations and trying to act in very new ways. My own work has been all about supporting people who engage with that kind of complexity, people with a passion for big change. Just like the people who come here to Banff every summer for a month-long social innovation residency called Getting to Maybe. I'm part of the team that delivers this program. I want to share with you one of the first things we do here at the residency. If you can, close your eyes. Take a deep breath and imagine you are now a guitar, a beautiful six string guitar, but only one string is working. What about the other five? Imagine what would happen if you could play all six strings. Imagine the different chords, the new music. So why am I having you imagine all this? Well, what if I told you that that one string is your rational, intellectual mind? That's the one that we usually rely on. And all those other strings are different ways of being and knowing and learning that we hardly ever use. The emotional, the physical, the relational, the metaphorical, the spiritual. How do we reconnect those other five strings? How do we stop playing that one string long enough to even hear the others? When we're here at the BAMP Center during the residency, We ask people to become still, to quiet their busy minds, to pay attention in new ways to things like their own stories as well as ancient myths, to their bodies, their dreams, the land, music, and art. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Wouldn't it be so nice to have time for that? But listen, here's the thing. We're not encouraging this just because it's nice. We're prioritizing this because you need to have all the strings intact and ready to be played if you really want to see impact on the things that you care about in the world. I believe this. I know this to be true. And yet I'm going to tell you, even I struggle with taking that regular time to be reflective or still. What's that all about? Somebody who has his own perspective on both the value and the challenge around this is one of my colleagues, Don McIntyre. Dawn shares his knowledge on traditional Indigenous practices like smudging, drumming, and storytelling to support residency participants on their journeys. Dawn and I sat together on a beautiful day in Banff, and he talked about the value of what he calls becoming hollow. So Dawn, it's so great to be here, well, just to see you again, but especially to be here in Banff. And um, I'm really grateful that you just take a little bit of time to sit here with me on the steps of the yurt on the Banff Centre campus. In some ways I think it's a magical place because every time I come all of my friends are here so. (laughs) Uh, Yeah I know what you mean. So I know that you have your own very regular daily practices around um, preparing for the day and you know something we might think of as reflective practice but I know for you this includes a daily smudge and so I wondered could you just talk me through that what exactly do you do and then why is it important to you 
the teachings that I have are there are four sacred medicines. There's uh, sage, tobacco, sweet grass, and cedar. And so we will bring one of them and we actually burn it in a, an abalone shell. And there are aspects. It's a very big but also very sort of gentle ceremony. And so you put a little bit of the earth uh, inside the shell and then you light the medicine. And sometimes it's a number of them, sometimes it's only one. But you take that smoke and the teaching is that the smoke actually is sort of a invocation or a, an ask to the creator, Kichimanitu, the, the great spirit, to help you through your day. And you take the smoke into your hands and then you put it over your head. And as you put it over your head, you ask for a clear or pure mind to think with. And then you take another scoop and you put it over your eyes and you ask for clear eyes to see with and another scoop and put it over your ears and say pure ears or clear ears to hear with and clear mouth to speak with. Uh, and then you put it across your heart and say clear or pure heart to be with. And for me, what it does is it always does two things. One is it grounds me and sort of tells myself this is how I want to walk through the day. So occasionally there are days where I have to go back and smudge three or four times because it's just a bad day. Uh, but the other thing that it does, it tells you how you want to be, but also elders use it for this idea of becoming hollow because one of the things that they ask the spirits when they're doing that smudge, when they're going into ceremony, is they'll make a second offering of tobacco or one of the medicines and say, help me have the words. And so um, elders and traditional knowledge holders never think about it as they're their words. They think that they are sort of a conduit for something bigger than themselves. For Don, reflection and stillness aren't new. It's a part of how he lives his life. But for some of our residency participants, reflective practice is less familiar. This was true for André Vachiste, a participant in last summer's residency. He works for the Pillar Nonprofit Network, and he's the Director of Social Enterprise and Social Finance. He's based in London, Ontario. Last summer in Banff, I watched André open up to these ideas that there's value in taking time away from being busy and filling every moment with work. That becoming more quiet gives you access to important understandings about situations. Leaving Banff, he took some of this new openness back to his job. But how easy is it to bring these kinds of practices into a big organization in a big city? I got Andre on the line to tell me more about how it's going. You've shared with me that you're working a lot on your own personal development through, I'm going to call it mindfulness, reflection, etc. So can you tell me what are some concrete practices that you do regularly every day or every week or whatever it is that are part of that? Like right now, not answering right away. <laughs> Pausing to answer, I think, was one of the biggest ones I've 
learn to um, embrace. You know, there's a time in, in life when you, know, when you talk to someone, you're expected to answer right away or even have your response prepared as someone's speaking. And I'm learning to breathe between you know, conversations, between sentences. In this day and age, I'm like, I really admire the fact that I can write my thoughts down and I can have a place to unpack them for myself and, and even share them with others given the right context. So journaling, um, breathing. So those are some quick examples of how I've been trying to just be more present with myself and also to listen to what's happening around me. Yeah. I mean, that will make a big difference in any part of your life. But specifically, let's relate that to your work in the world. How do you think those kinds of practices are having a concrete effect on your capacity to make change happen? So, you know, I look back at some of the work. I work with investors. And so I work with like the, the local angel group in, in London. And I look back at those presentations, like I had it all wrong. It was tell, me, about, you, tell me what you mean by that. It was all about me, me, me. I need to tell you about this. I need to tell you about that. I need to convince you about this. I need to hear validation that you believe what I'm saying is, is true. And so when I started doing work after kind of, you know, becoming more comfortable with this reflective practice, I, I actually started hosting conversations. Mm. I actually started opening up the, like a circle format. So we create more circle formats and it's worked and we did it in that way. Mm. And I also think that um, it also allows us to be more honest about what we're doing. What about it allows you to feel that you can be more honest? Because I think we're also kind of exposing ourselves a little bit more, everyone. So I think when we lead with the exposing, if we're hosting a conversation and we say, you know what, you know, I actually want to do this work because I've been, I, I, I feel pain when I look at, you know, the planet being destroyed or I feel pain when, you know, people in our community are being, you know, put to the edges and, and not being supported. And I actually talk about my own vulnerability and I have enough courage to bring that forward, that helps other people bring that forward. Mm. And you realize the conversations you start having are not about the investment or not about the program, but about people's personal experiences, personal emotions. And, and then that connects to things that they've experienced with their families, with their community. And you really have a more rich and deeper conversation. And that goes beyond their involvement in a particular program or product that you're offering. It, can, it can, creates a little bit more of a, a movement, I suppose, of people that are not only like-minded, but of like-hearted. like, like hearted. So you feel that you're able to achieve much deeper engagement, commitment from people, because there is this opportunity to show up more human, vulnerable, as you said, which is such a part of humanness. The nature of your relationships, it sounds, are different. Why might this help us move forward in the ways we want to around the impact we want to see in communities? Telling the truth about how we're experiencing things in the world and taking the time to actually talk about those truths in, in a vulnerable and courageous and whole way, I think that is what's going to create the real change. And when I first came back from BAMP, I was actually like holding meditations before like meetings and, and presentations. But I do remember one that we did and I held a meditation before we started our meeting. And in this collaborator that we worked with, we we're always having some very tense conversations. It was always hard to find the common ground to work on. Even though we were kept showing up to these meetings, we just never really, really progressing that quickly. And actually, everyone opened their eyes. And I looked around the room, and everyone just seemed different. They seemed more themselves. And the conversation was a whole different conversation. So much more honesty came into that room. And, and since that day, even though collaboration still isn't easy and still we have tension, there's a level of trust, a level of 
you know, feeling like I know who I'm actually dealing with or working with now that's different than it was before. I remember that you once said to me that uh, you needed courage to really share the reflection and mindfulness practices in your professional life. So why, why do you need to be brave? Because people look at you funny. Okay, talk to me about that. That's, yeah. that's a beautiful nutshell. Talk to me yeah. about that. What do you mean people look at you funny and why does that make you worry? Well, obviously the worry is not to feel accepted. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that you worry what they'll think of you and that you'll worry about, you know, whatever reputation and confidence that they have in you that it might affect any of that? Do you, to what degree do you worry about that kind of thing? I think I worry about it every day. Some days I do better than others. Some days, you know, I, I fail at being my whole self and my best self. And some days I'm stellar at it. And I think what's really changing for me as I kind of go more consistently through this reflective practice is that I become more consistent, more resilient, I should say, person through the ebbs and flows of life that it throws at us. So, right. Because it takes time. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a regular practice in our lives. I believe in the value of a reflective practice, but I know for those just starting out, it can be a hard thing to get your head around. They might think, why would I take time out of my routine to not get stuff done? And it's hard to shake that voice. This is something that Lee Rose and Tatiana Fraser know very well. Lee is the managing director and Tatiana is the chair of the board for CKX, a social change agency that helps organizations and individuals use reflective practices to improve the social impacts of their work. Here are Lee and Tatiana on why it can be a challenge for people to step back and reflect. The challenge, I think, is that people don't think of reflection or the, you know, the thoughtful pause as action. And we posit that it is, that that's an equally important piece of work towards creating social change. But it's definitely a shift for a lot of people. I think, you know, people are moving so fast and the demands for, you know, high performance, high impact, go, go, go. You know, it's, the, it's kind of the nature of the world we live in today, the high tech nature of the amount of information that we're receiving and being bombarded with. Um, you know, those are, I think, the, the, the barriers that we see you know, in an, on an individual level to be able to actually <laughs> successfully engage in reflective practice, but also, you know, in the broader system. And that's reflected in, for example, you know, the need to be able to quantify and bring, you know, put metrics to, to change. And, um, and also the ways in which people who are leading change need to work endlessly and tirelessly to actually be able to, to finance and support the work that needs to be done. So it's counter, it's so counter to what reflective practice, the values of reflective practice, the culture of reflective practice. And I see that as, as a barrier and I, it, it's a barrier of value. It's a, it's a barrier of appreciation and prioritizing for, um, for the permission to actually do the slowing down and to take the time to do the reflection and to connect. You heard Lee Rose and Tatiana Frazier on the challenges of prioritizing reflective practice in organizations. But reflection isn't just something to use when breaking away from the busy boardroom. 
In fact, Vanessa Reed takes this with her wherever she works. She's the co-founder of the Living Wholeness Institute, and she works in some high-stakes places around Europe and in the Middle East, places where there might be active violence, where systems and governments are falling apart. There could be economic crisis. Things are happening quickly, and, and people are panicking. It would be so easy to say that there's no time for reflection here. So I talked to Vanessa to find out why, even in these potentially risky situations, it's so important to slow down, to take time, to help people reflect and find their way forward. I started my conversation with her by asking why it's important to do this even in the midst of crisis. I think the work of reflective practice um, is, is, is to be able to pause and make some sense of it. But the, the pause though, isn't to try and fix it. The pause is to stop and let more information in or different information in because um, it's not about necessarily coming back together. It's that something might actually be coming apart and there's something new in the coming apart. So if I were to say in, in moments of massive change or subtle change of crisis, of collapse, of seeing suddenly that your context is no longer what you thought it was, to pause and stop rather than to push ahead is to be able to access more of yourself and not act on, on reaction or with the same tools as before. Because if you use the same tools, but it's a different context, it might not be at all relevant. In the pause is to be able to open up to new possibilities that weren't available to us when we were running and, and reacting. So this is very interesting to think about the reflective practices, not only reviewing what you know, making sense of it, you know, making, deciding, okay, this tells me how to move forward, uh-huh. but it's also a sort of a, a clearing out and an opening up to information, in, yes. information that's important to have that you haven't accessed yet at all. Yes, I would say in in Canada, for example, using language and using your mind um, are are kind of high rank. That's that's the way we get. Um, uh, that's the way we do our work primarily. If we put those aside, and there's a huge amount of, of other ways of accessing intelligence and information. Can you, can you talk but, about some of those ways? Yeah. Can you name some of them? So, what would be more secondary would be. For example, uh, having, like you said, an intuition. Uh, what is intuition? And intuition comes from a, another kind of knowing, which is following something less uh, tangible, but you might be, you know, you might really be onto something. Body awareness. Um, often, if we look at body symptoms, it's an inner conflict between how we're supposed, how we think we're supposed to act externally, and actually, uh, information, maybe emotional information or psychological information that, that isn't um, articulated yet. And so that inner conflict comes out in a body symptom. Hmm. Um, that's called the dream body. Uh, the dream body work works with um, uh, looking at the body and, and symptoms as a dreaming process, just like how we might analyze our dreams at night. 
as a way of finding out more about our inner dictionary of our symbols and uh, themes that come up in our dreams. This, uh, many people use that as really important information, again, not to solve something, but to discover more of one's, oneself or one's inner psyche. But it's, it's, it's unprocessed information. That's what dreams are. Well, same, same with body symptoms, it's unprocessed information. Another way would be, and this is a practice we use a lot in our work in Greece, um, where we were hosting a lot of what we called immersive learning experiences for social change leaders, storytelling, and storytelling um, from my culture and your culture, we might have different ways of accessing old wisdom or accessing metaphors that have a huge amount of information or, or tradition or um, inspiration behind them. And those metaphors, that the language of metaphor opens up our minds and our, and our imaginations in different ways than reading a scientific study or a strategic report. It's just a different part of the brain. The other one is walking the land. And so we would, in Greece, we would walk the land with the olive trees and listen to the land. And what that means, and it's opening up to a different way of receiving um, uh, information. Something flirts with you, you keep noticing certain things. And then your mind becomes associative and you start to think of something that you just didn't have room for before when you were focused on reading or or talking so you're not talking you're sensing your body is, is so it's very kinesthetic experience with your body it's proprioceptive because you might have feelings of excitement or fear or recognition when you walk in the the forest those are all different channels than the primary channel of verbalizing um, visualizing and intellectualizing what do you say to the skeptics? Well, the first thing I would say is thank you for your skepticism and to inquire more into, into their skepticism and what are they standing for? And, and I think that if people are skeptical, um, then, then they're standing for something. And, but being in the spirit of inquiry with them is to is is to be in a form of reflective practice together. Yeah. Um, I just really love that response that you have to skepticism is to then be curious and try to, you know, what might I learn about what you stand for and what works for you mm -hmm. and what's true for you in the work that you care so deeply about. Mm -hmm. I think part of the beginning of reflective practice or or creating that pause or you know, in different traditions, it would be, you know, the sabbatical or, or the Sabbath or the moment of great when people used to or still say grace before dinner or those like tiny moments, those micro moments in our day that actually getting on the subway and sitting by yourself um, for three stops is the reflective practice. Um, if you don't turn your phone on, but maybe for some people, turning your phone on is a reflective practice because you're zoning out. And when you zone out, you go into kind of an altered state. And in that kind of zone out place is that space of releasing and being associative or getting out of your regular identity and your regular modality. I think even those micro moments um, are, are important moments of pause and reflection. There seems to be some, some returning to these very old ways of, well, in some ways it feels like it's preserving our humanness 
Um, but in also it's ways of continuing to grow ourselves, right? Continuing to mature, continuing to make sense of things and continuing to understand how we're changing as we work to change something that's outside of ourselves. When I think about systems change and systems transformation, I think for me, the, the deeper transformation is that there's something that we're needing to let go of and there's some new, um, deeper way of being in the world together. That, that's my hope. Uh, and when I say deeper, I mean that has some maturation to it. And um, I think systems change is when you get to the edge of how a system has been functioning and it had a whole worldview and set of practices and relationships and values and behaviors associated with it. And the crisis comes when that is no longer viable or there's another possibility trying to meet it. The, the crisis is a crisis, I think, ultimately of, of identity. <laughs> Um, identity of the leader. I used to lead like this, and now um, I'm I'm being pulled into leading like this. But that's not how I identify myself. And people saw me this previous way, and now I, you know, I'm moving into this other. How do I make that shift? Mm -hmm. And it's like there's a way of saying well, it's okay to let go of those ways of being or working because something else is being asked of you now. So so many of the leaders I work with and the systems I work with are being asked to move to a new level of scale, either in terms of breadth, a new level of scale in terms of depth and wisdom, uh, or a new, a new part of themselves that's being called on that they've never accessed before, but it's needed now. And so how do they transition to becoming, you know, to maturing into that next phase of their life? Vanessa, I want to thank you so much for this chat. I, I really appreciate all that you've said, and I'm feeling deep appreciation for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. This was so great. So nice to be asked great questions. I continue to be just so curious about what appears to be the power of reflective practice. While at the same time, I wonder, what would it take for these practices to become more central, more accepted? I can't help but think that maybe reflective practice is a missing ingredient in serious change efforts. We might just need it more than we know. I want to thank each of you for taking the time to listen to this episode. And I hope that you'll find a little bit more time to think about whether reflective practice might be important to you and your work. Thank you to my guests on today's episode of Maybe. You heard Don McIntyre, my fellow faculty in the Getting to Maybe program. Don is Algonquin and Anishinaabe from the Wolf Clan of the Temiskaming First Nation. He was adopted by the Donjali family of the Beaver Clan of the Nishka Nation. Now, Don lives and works on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Nation and was gifted the name Wolf Runner. Andre Vachiste, who is a past participant in the Getting to Maybe Social Innovation Residency, Lee Rose and Tatiana Fraser with CKX, and Vanessa Reed, co-founder of the Living Wholeness Institute. The metaphor of the guitar that you heard at the beginning of the episode is from a paper by Virginia Griffin. It's called, Would You Play a One-String Guitar? Molly Siegel is my podcast coach and co-producer. Banff Center's practicum Esther Gad gave post-production support. 
the Getting to Maybe Social Innovation Residency here at BAMP Center and all the people who've been involved in it are the inspiration for this podcast series. I'm Cheryl Rose, a member of the faculty team. I want to acknowledge that BAMP Center is located on Treaty 7 territory, the traditional lands of the Blackfoot, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina First Nations. I hope you'll be able to join me next time for another story about the complexities of working for social innovation. Another story about getting just a little bit closer to maybe. <laughs>